When you come forward to receive communion at the high altar, the rarados is what's above the altar and has this wonderful wooden statuary. And the last statue all the way around, get past Christ and go to the very end on the right, is a statue of Thomas Cranmer in his Canterbury cap. Thomas Cranmer was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 16th century, and he was the architect and editor of the first Book of Common Prayer in 1549, and he was one of the world's greatest wordsmiths. At the time, the English language was just flourishing, and Elizabethan language in particular was at its height, and that's why the Book of Common Prayer sounds so beautiful. And Thomas Cranmer edited a lot of things, translated a things into Latin, from Latin into English, and he wrote a few things. And our opening collect of the day was one of his originals that he wrote. And it's a perfect description of the Episcopal Anglican approach to prayer. He writes that as we read the Scriptures, so may we in such wise read, mark, learn, and last but not least, inwardly digest them. That's beautiful. And it's a perfect description of what we as Episcopalians are trying to do as we pray these scriptures, which we believe are divinely inspired, not infallible, but divinely inspired. For these stories and images are what's at the heart of what we're trying to interpret and trying to get within our own hearts and minds. For us, the Bible is not some compendium of old laws or rules, much less ancient history, but stories and images that actually relate to what is inside of each and every one of us. There's a lot this morning to inwardly digest. Three of our four readings concern the mystery of time, that intersection between eternity and chronology. The fourth reading, the gospel reading, the parable, God only knows what that one's about. So let's look elsewhere. From Psalm 90, for a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it is past, and like a watch in the night, you sweep us away like a dream, and we fade away suddenly like the grass. It's a stunning description of what it feels like to live a very ordinary life. It's just like a dream, isn't it? Who's not one morning gotten up and tried to recall what you just minutes or hours ago dreamed, trying to recall the color and the shapes and the oddities of what was so vivid in your mind and imagination just a few minutes ago, but you can't quite grasp it. It's an incredible image for a human life. It also makes me think of how when most of us were children... If you grew up the way I did and and, and had a good home and food and most of the things you needed in life, time felt kind of endless, especially weeks like this one when you're off of school for a full week, especially Christmas when you're off of Christmas a couple, especially summers. Do you remember how summers just had this endless 
quality to them that they would go on and on and on. And especially when school started after Labor Day, you didn't have to concern yourself with that forever. It was frustrating, too, when time seemed to go on and on and on, because I, then and now, am really an impatient soul. So if I say was having someone over to spend the night, and he couldn't get there until dinner time, and it was early in the morning, the day just went way too long. If I had something exciting to do a few days later for going on vacation, it seemed like the day would never get there when we'd finally leave. Santa Claus seemed to take an eternity to finally show up. It also means that we know what children mostly don't know, that once you cross some boundary as an adult, time is less endless, isn't it? It seems to shrink. It seems to be elusive like a dream. Once we get over middle age, perhaps, and the closer we get to the end, whether the end is 10 or 20 or 40 years, Time is no longer endless, and it's so elusive and slippery. Zephaniah's prophecy is more emotional, and as prophets go, demanding, of course, and even gross with its reference to human waste. The prophet's point, as is usually the case with prophets, is pretty clear. Neither silver nor gold will save us. That old adage, you brought nothing into this world, and guess what? You'll take nothing with you when you go. And his question, which could not be any more poignant or even aggressive, what then will save us? Who will save us? If it's not our money, if it's not our resources, if it's not our success, if it's not all of our efforts and all of our power and all of the things we pour so much of the fiber of our heart and mind and body into, if that doesn't save us, what will? Thessalonians is the most comforting because it tries to answer that very question. Who can save us? God, of course. For God has destined us not for wrath, but for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether awake or asleep, we may live with Christ. In other words, eternity intersects with chronology in Christ. And we, and this is the mind-blowing part of it, in order to relate to Christ, all we have to do is live very human lives. And Christ promises to meet us right there in our lives, in our days, and most mysteriously of all, perhaps, in our deaths. Christ meets us in time. We don't have to go out of time in order to meet Christ. There's a lovely refrain from Compline or Night Prayer, if you've ever prayed it. It's the, the short set of prayers for the end of the day that's in the Book of Common Prayer. If you've never prayed it, prayed it, I suggest you try it once. It's really lovely and beautiful. And one of the nice things about Compline is you don't need a priest there at bedside to pray it for you. You can pray it on your own. And it has this incredible refrain toward the end that's an allusion to these very words from Thessalonians. God us waking, O Lord and guard us sleeping, that awake we may watch with Christ, and asleep we may rest in peace. 
that very, very ordinary rhythm of our days, waking and sleeping, living and dying, this passage comforts us with the awareness that Christ is right there with us, couldn't be any closer as we live such ordinary lives. The last part of a burial is the graveside or the committal part. It's what we say when we go out to All Souls Columbarium, if you've been to a graveside at a cemetery, it's those short set of prayers that are said right there. And when it's a small burial, um, just a few people, I will often take the opportunity once we're at the committal to invite everyone who's there gathered to tell a quick story or just a memory or an image that each of them have for the person, for their beloved, whom we are burying. Almost always in that moment, what is remembered or recalled is really poignant and so lovely and so specific. In the grand scheme of time, and especially within what we now know of as evolutionary history, these stories and memories that are so heartfelt and tender, these artifacts of the heart, are tiny, just tiny. And with the overall fabric of time and space, they can even appear insignificant in light of everything else. There's humility in such a realization if it helps us to become aware of what a small place we have within space and time. That realization can also be really deadly if it leads to despair, simply asking then what, does, what matters. These three readings offer us a complementary and I think much happier perspective on how tiny our lives sometimes feel. The realization is this, that nothing of good is lost in Christ. Nothing of the good, nothing of truth, nothing of beauty is lost in Christ. Yes, our lives feel like an elusive dream, but in light of these passages, and especially the comfort of Thessalonians, God remembers all of these dreams and all the people who dream them. Faith, then, is in part simply this, trusting that God's memory is better than ours. And salvation, in part, is also related to the divine memory. For whatever and whoever God remembers is safe and sound, whole and healed in the divine mind.